Ruth 3, 1 through 18. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thanks, Amanda. Hello. <laughs> I'm Heather, one of the pastors here, in case you don't know me. Um, I'm in this group. Oh, I forgot my tea. It's most essential. Sorry, I'm back. Um, take two. Um, I'm in this group that meets monthly, and I just had my group this week. And the goal of the group is to press into behaviors that dignify um, all the people around us. And you know, sometimes that takes practice. So I'm in this group that helps me to do that. And so this last Thursday when I was at my group, um, it's on Zoom, um, and the woman who leads the group, she opened it up with this month's topic, and then we all started chatting. I'm out of breath, and I just ran down there. <laughs> Just give myself a minute, have a sip of tea. So we all started chatting and then she opens up the group and at one point she was talking about something that she'd seen in the news um, and she was going to post something with a link to it and then she said she stopped herself and I loved what she said about why she stopped herself. And I wrote it down, and this is why I'm in the group with this woman. 
She said, the world did not deserve me to be that cruel to someone who I don't know and who doesn't know me. And I was like, yeah, it's really easy just in these moments. Like, din and din, that wasn't great, blah, blah, I'm going to say this about you. Don't even know you, but pow, pow. And she's like, yeah, the world does not deserve me to be that cruel to someone I don't know and who doesn't know me. We have to practice not being reactionary, instinctually saying things that come off the top of our head about somebody else. Easy to do about people we don't know. And we actually have to be supported in figuring out ways to behave towards one another. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. They're in a context where they are being reactionary. And some of their behaviors, most of them, are land in the realm of cruelty, if not violent. And so the, the book of Ruth is actually this picture or this invitation, these characters are inviting us to learn, kind of in our own little group here with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and each other, on how to learn ways in which to live, behaviors in which to offer one another in our everyday lives, how to treat each other, how to treat everyone. And part of the point of Ruth is that it highlights what is known as loving kindness. And I love that word loving kindness because it's kind of a motive and an action. The motive is to be loving and the action is kindness. It's an active caring for one another, loving kindness. And that's this, this main or one of the main points of the book of Ruth is loving kindness. And so, as we look at the book of Ruth, there are many surprises. And we're meant to um, look at these surprises that show up in these characters, and we're meant to be invited into our own kinds of self-reflection. And through that self-reflection, a renewed action. So how then do we act in our everyday with one another? And so we're going to look at these people today. We're going to sit with them and hang out with them, not on a Zoom call, but through this text. And we want to ask ourselves, what do we hear? And what do we see in them? And what do we learn from Naomi and from Ruth and from Boaz? And so as we look at them, I want it to potentially invite us into our own creativity and action. So there's some reflective question. Often action comes first out of reflection. So there's three questions that I want you just to hold on to today as we walk through the text. What do these characters teach you? What do they inspire in you? And is there a kind of action that they call out of you today? So hold on to these self-reflective questions as we attune to the people in this passage today. Let me pray and then we'll attune to Naomi. Spirit, thanks for your presence and that you have things that we might hear from you today. Pray that um, as we hold on to these reflective questions and as we look at these people in the book of Ruth that... Um, there would be a newness, a creativity, an innovation that is born in us. And we depend on you, Spirit, to um, awaken us. Awaken us to loving kindness. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we have Naomi. It's the first person that emerges in this chapter. She's been previously, chapter one, and mainly one, and then a little bit in two, and now here she shows up again in chapter three. And the last major um, picture of her was when I preached a couple of weeks ago, and we were learning of her loss, that she had lost her husband and her two sons. And the reality of loss, as many of you know too, any kind of loss, whether that's rejection or abandonment, sickness, kind of loss of health, divorce and death, is that it takes the breath out of you. One author um, writes about loss and she says, it freezes the heart and it slows the mind. I love that. It changes life, the very foundations when we experience loss. Um, And Joan Chichester, she's a sister nun, and she says this, loss propels us into another life whether we want to begin again or not. And this is true for Naomi and Ruth. They have experienced loss and they are propelled into newness of life whether they want to begin or not. They are forced into new beginnings. And so part of that new beginnings we looked at is lament. And lament and grief are these practices that move us through loss. And they're beautiful practices because it takes time to move out of the shock of loss, to regain footing, and to see ourselves as separate from what we've lost, and to potentially be able to see God in our darkest places. All of those things take time. And lament and grief are the practices that help us move through in that time. And as we arrive at chapter 3, time has passed. Both the barley and the harvest and crops have come and gone and they've harvested and they've finished um, that work. And Ruth has been gleaning the whole time. She's been working. She's been providing and building and living during this time with Naomi in this new beginning. And the text doesn't tell us what Naomi's doing. Maybe she's grieving. But at this moment, with the passing of time, there is now some movement in Naomi. And she turns towards Ruth and she says, My daughter, shouldn't I seek security? That word can also be translated rest. Shouldn't I seek rest for you so that things might go well for you or be good for you? And her initial concern for Ruth on that road when they were traveling together and walking back has never changed. She wanted her to go back to Moab so that she would find rest, if you go back to that first chapter and what she says there, to find security and be provided for. And here she is again, And she's like, I want this for you still. And so in this moment, Ruth empowers, excuse me, Naomi empowers Ruth again. First, she tried to empower her on the road with emancipation. She wanted to set her loose. In that culture, she basically belonged to Naomi. And so she she empowers her again. She just keeps on empowering her. This older woman keeps on empowering the younger. 
first with emancipation, and then with supporting her entrepreneurial spirit as she goes out and does this work, and now in devising a plan that requires risk and courage, but that will locate her in what she hopes is a place of rest and good for her. This is the type of women we want in our lives. And the plan is to be married, because in that culture, it is the only real way for a woman to be supported, to be secure, and to be provided for in the long term. So she's bringing this up, coming up with this plan. And gleaning has provided for them, but in this moment, Naomi empowers her to reach for more. And she's taking up her, her responsibility as the head of this unit that needs the protective care of their kinship group, their family, distant though it might be. And she offers her, distor, her, her daughter-in-law an option. But still, Naomi knows that this is not the most awesome option that she that is in the world, but it's the one they have. She knows that there are barriers that still exist. Her daughter-in-law is a Moabite widow, and there's no man to mediate the marriage proposal, and so she takes this into her own hands. And Boaz, the person that Naomi names that her daughter-in-law should go and propose to, he's wealthy and he's honorable, and he's in good standing in the community, and he's also a Jew. So all of those things sound good, but there's actually a ton of social implications and complications that come with him. There are racial complications. There are age complications. There are religious complications. And there is the complication that the proposal is coming from a woman, which is not even common in our own society let alone a um, strongly patriarchal, ancient culture. So there is nothing on paper that really determines a positive outcome. So she's like, go get it, girl. <laughs> right? And Naomi sends her outside of all the conventions of Israel. Except justice. Justice is all over the laws and texts of this nation, Israel. And justice can be a word that sounds a little bit like hollow or like huge or large and like hard to get a hold of. It's like love can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Cornel West's definition of justice is what love looks like in public. And I think that definition comes close to what Israel would have learned justice to be through their laws and texts. I was talking about this with my friend Steph. She's like my friend who's a theologian who I always call when I'm looking at texts. And um, we were talking about this and she did her PhD on Simone Weil. And as we were looking at this together, you know, Simone Weil is a person who lived in the early 1900s and she was observing a lot of inequity in society at that time. 
And my friend was like, oh, as we're talking, it's reminding me of how Simone Weil defines justice. This is how she defines it. To treat another person as though there is no power differential at all, even when the power or privilege differential is huge. Justice. To treat people as if there is no differential. And these definitions, Simone Weil's and Cornel West, it means that justice is not about piety. It's not about doing religious duty, and it's not about pity, feeling sorry for someone. Justice is about human dignity. It's the ethical treatment of people. And God locates the ethical treatment of people, rooting it in the law of love. And if we don't know what love is, Jesus summarizes it in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, okay, if you don't understand the concept of love, treat other people the way you want to be treated. It's perfect. Just distill it right down. He says that's how you can summarize the whole law and the prophets, this notion of justice, this notion of ethical behavior. And Ruth and Naomi have encountered a man of honor, Boaz. He has recognized her value. He has treated her with respect. He does not ignore her. He does not exploit her. He does not dismiss her. He does not coerce or manipulate her. He has room for her and uses his resource and position to empower her entrepreneurial efforts. So when Naomi asks Ruth to reach for the dignity of marriage, which is important and vital in that culture, she has reason to. And this woman, this mentor that I was just talking at, she always says, you have to move at the speed of trust. And so here, Naomi and Ruth are moving at the speed of trust. This is not arbitrary or flippant. What Naomi is suggesting is thoughtful and discerning with keen insight. But it's still risky. The plan itself is risky. She's to go out to the threshing floor, which women weren't actually invited to, in a space of predominantly men who are eating and drinking a lot in celebration. And she's going in the middle of the night. And it's already said multiple times in the text that she needs to be careful because spaces like this are spaces where women are harmed or abused. So the plan itself is risky. The context, the environment that she's going to walk into has risk to it. But the plan is also risky because Boaz is not technically required to marry Ruth because she is not the widowed wife of his dead brother. That's what the law says. And so Naomi here is going to press into the embodied generosity that they have seen and experienced from Boaz. She's like, go press him a little further, girl. 
He might do this. He might provide rest. He just might. But she doesn't know. So this is what she says to her. He will tell you what you should do. Because she does not know what he is going to say. Um, Joan Chichester says, Naomi co-creates possibilities with her creator God. It is because of her designs that their whole world becomes more whole. Naomi does not let her circumstances dictate her. She finds her way through loss and lament and the taste of bitterness and through is not a given with loss and lament, and the taste of bitterness. We have to choose to begin again. We have to live into the beginning again. And she activates her creativity, and she empowers this young woman at every step, her daughter in love, who she loves. And she moves at the speed of trust. She doesn't lack wisdom but she is daring and unconventional to seek and pursue the good that she knows they are worthy of. What an epic human. So I want you to self-reflect. What does Naomi teach you? What does Naomi inspire in you? Is there an action that she calls out of you? She's good people. And now let's look at Ruth, because in the text we hear, this is Naomi, she opens this up, and then Ruth responds. She goes, she's like, all right, I'll take that, I'll go, let's try this out, Naomi. So she goes, and then she waits. She waits till this man has eaten and has drank a lot. And she's in the night, she's in a vulnerable spot. Who knows where she is? Nobody sees her. And then she watches him lie down. And then she lies down just as her mother-in-law had told her to do. And then he wakes up. And he's startled, as you can imagine. Well, what? And he asks, who who is this? Who are you? What? And her response, I'm Ruth. And then she says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So she goes into this precarious situation 
She does what her mother-in-law encourages her to do. And then, because she's quite an independent person, as we know, she acts on the plan, but she actually takes it further. Naomi is suggesting a private marriage proposal. And Ruth presses it. She presses it into the public square. She is pressing it to be a public legal matter. Guardian redeemer of our family. Ruth hasn't told her to say that. I mean, Naomi hasn't told her to say that. And what is meant by this is described in the legal text of the Old Testament. But their situation, it doesn't present an exact legal precedent precedent for Boaz to marry Ruth. And Boaz would have known that he is not legally obligated to marry Ruth on the basis of kinship. He's not technically bound to marry her. And he has not attempted to. He's a man of honor. He hasn't attempted to because I know he, he knows the law. And the guardian redeemer law was a necessity where the nearest relative was to purchase a man's land. There's a Leverite law, which is marriage, and then this guardian redeemer law, which is about land. Naomi owns the land, which we will learn about in chapter 4. And so in this moment, Ruth isn't so much seeking a husband for herself as she's holding fast to the vow that she made on the road with her mother-in-law. She is holding hard to that vow to her and to the male relatives that they've lost. She here is seeking to uphold their family name. And she confronts Boaz with that responsibility. And she challenges him to uphold Naomi's family line. Neither of them are under any obligation to do that. And if he does this, the way that she is proposing, if she has a son, everything that her son um, or everything that he invests, land, time, resource, will then go to her son, which will mean that his sons will inherit less. It is going to cost his family unit something. And the fact that he is the man of standing, is the implication there is that he already has an established family and sons. We don't know if he's married, if he's widowed, but we do know that he has honor there, which means that he likely has sons. And so she is asking him to cost something very significant to his own lineage, his own line, his own children, because he will have to share what would be theirs with her. And the person that would inherit that would be Elimelech, not him. I love her. Ruth pursues more than the law demands and more than Naomi requested. In Naomi's heart is Ruth. She's watching out for her. 
And in Ruth's heart is Naomi. Ruth's request on the threshing floor comes with Naomi in mind. Boaz, I know you're a good man. I'm calling on you to do more than you are required to do. Will you do right by our family, even though it will cost yours to do so? That's rare in society. We might be willing to bear the cost for our own children. We might be willing to bear cost for our spouse. We might be willing to bear costs for some, some of our family. Let's not put all of them in there, right? We might be willing to bear costs for some of our close friends. Ruth is perceived by society as an outsider, as powerless, as insignificant. She's unimportant. to society, but she is actually none of those. She stands her sacred ground. And in dignity, she holds space for herself. She holds space for her mother-in-law. And the men in the family who are no longer alive to hold their own space and secure their lineage. She holds space for all of them. And she is doing this act for all of them. And most especially for Naomi. In loving kindness, she does more for Naomi than she is required to do. So she is not asking for something she is not already living into. What does Ruth teach you? What does Ruth inspire in you? Is there an action that she calls out of you? She's another epic human. And finally, we get to Boaz. Here he is. He's about to show up in the text. What do you got, Boaz? Here she is, this woman, and she makes this statement. It could be totally offensive to him. Woman is not actually permitted to be alone with a man. Here she is, breaking all the conventions, pressing him. All kinds of responses possible out of this man, right? probably could get her arrested. But for the second time, Boaz recognizes Ruth. Ruth in the text, we've seen over and over again, she's independent, she's resourceful, she's strong, and she's loyal. And Boaz, we see over and over again, is just. And he's honest. And he's a secure man. 
And out of that security, he recognizes and honors what he sees in this woman who is classified as an outsider. He uses his own judgment to determine. And he recognizes her and he recognizes what he sees and he tells her. And there is so, something so beautiful about not just recognizing but telling. Words are powerful. When we see goodness, when we see beauty, when we see things worth celebrating, we can recognize, but there is something also about the telling that embodies it into something else. And so in this moment, he recognizes and he tells her. He says a number of things, but in verse 11, he says, Indeed, my people, all who are at the gate, know that you are a woman of worth. And this is how the text introduces Boaz. Now, Naomi had a respective relative, a man of worth. And the word here, the word worth, and they've used it purposefully in the text for him and now for her. And the word means strength, ability, wealth. It's like a noble definition. The thing that's really cool about it is that it also means that there's like a force of an army behind it the force of an army behind this woman. And we are told in the text by the narrator that this is who Boaz is, and now Boaz tells us this is who she is. He is honored for who he is, and now he honors and recognizes her for who she is. And it doesn't come from social frameworks, it comes from her. And the thing he mirrors back to her is, you are my equal. on the threshing floor, in this moment of unconventional appeal, what he says to her is, you are my equal. And then Boaz follows the direction and the creative imagination and the leadership of Ruth and Naomi. And he says, I'll do exactly what you've asked. And so Naomi and Ruth reconvene and then Naomi knows he won't rest until he settles this. She knows he's a man of his word. And these two women and this man are collaborating on bringing about goodness in the world. And there is a beauty in mutuality, in this dance of working and belonging to one another. And sometimes it is hard to work in mutuality when so many things about our past experiences or our current experiences put us at odds with people in our lives for numerous reasons. And it could be that we're at odds because of our own personal experiences. It could be that we're at odds because of our political stances. It could be that we're at odds because of societal norms. You belong over there, I belong over here, you stay over there, I'm cool over here. We could be at odds because of peer pressure, expectations in the office. Not that anyone goes to the office anymore. But expectations in the workplace or school or home even. There's a family culture that kind of puts you at odds 
with some people. There are lots of things that can put us at odds with one another. And again, this woman that I meet with um, monthly, she part of meeting is that what would teach us to move past experiences that put us at odds with one another. And the thing that she said, and she said this week, she said, we must constantly move in the direction of celebrating, engaging, and enjoying each other as humans. She said, we don't tolerate humans. You tolerate shoes that don't fit right. And here, Ruth and Naomi are doing the diligence of trust. And then Ruth calls on Boaz to treat them with deep dignity. And then he recognizes her strength, that she is a woman who stands there with the same dignity that she that he has, that she's a woman of worth. And then he learns from her and he listens to her and he acts on what she says. Here is an unlikely crew who move in the direction of celebrating, engaging, and enjoying one another. It's powerful and it's beautiful. And it's an invitation to us. Who does Boaz learn from? Who does Boaz inspire you to learn from? Is there an action that he calls out of you? These everyday encounters of Ruth are here to teach us that God has designed us as humans to make happen what God's designs are for the world. Designs of loving kindness. Designs of justice. Of provision. Of kinship. Of loyalty. And of love. These are the characteristics that are located in the heart of God and embodied in these legit people, which is exactly what the text wants us to see. What do you learn about God from the everyday actions of these people? What can you learn about God from the everyday actions of each other? What do you think God wants us to see about each other as revealed in this text? I wasn't going to do this, but I'm kind of interested to know what you think. Just think of one word. What do you think God wants us to know about God's self or about each other? And say that word out loud. Compassion, abundance, Abundance. 
What other things? Help or hope? Hope. Hmm. Love that. Bravery. Commitment. Selfless. Risk. Sacrifice. Provision. All those things you've named are all things that are in the heart of God. The text reveals the heart of God, both for us and for one another. And so as we come to this table, it's a table that represents the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he took bread and he broke it. And he shared wine with his friends. And then he said, keep doing this in remembrance of me. And so as we keep doing this in remembrance of the one who calls us friends, come to this table as friends. We come as kin, those who belong to each other, whether we know each other or not. It is God who invites us into this kind of kinship where we do all of those things that you just named for and toward one another. So come to this table and celebrate someone at this table. Maybe the person next to you or maybe someone in your own mind. Come and celebrate someone. Come and give dignity to somebody at this table. Maybe you name them. Maybe you pray for them. Come and remember someone at this table. It could be someone you've lost. But most of all, come and be seen at this table today. Whether you know that God sees you or not, come to this table and be seen yourself. Monsieur, we are people of worth. And you might need someone to pray for you. That might be a struggle to reach to. There'll be somebody over here you can come and pray can be helpful to have words given to you in a space like this. So come and celebrate someone. Come and give dignity to someone. Someone remember someone. And come and be seen at this table today. We are people of worth. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, these inspiring humans, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And thank you that these, the intention behind this text is to awaken us, to behave in ways that embody loving kindness. Because the loving kindness that you've designed in us is your design for the world. And so Spirit, would you lead us into living your design? both toward ourselves and toward each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.